It's the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. The Locked On NBA Fantasy Minute is presented by PrizePix. PrizePix is the most fun you can have playing daily fantasy basketball and winning up to 25 times your money. Go to prizepix.com slash LockedOnNBA and use the code LockedOnNBA for a first deposit match up to $100. We are very much in the thick of the fantasy basketball playoffs. You might be starting it this week. You might be already in it. It might be a week away. And at this point of the year, with only five weeks left in the entire regular season, Playing the schedule is the most important thing. So this week, the Minnesota Timberwolves and the Los Angeles Lakers play two games only. So any fringe players you have from those teams, even guys, yes, like Kyle Anderson replacing Kyle Anthony Towns, that's not worth it with two games on. You need to be stacking extra games and you need to be looking at the teams with four games. You need to be looking at teams with games early in the week and then switching them out for teams with more games later in the week. Get more games in, play the schedule, be cutthroat with injuries and get players in to get yourself success for fantasy basketball. Wilson, you sent the game-winning email at the buzzer, avoiding a 4.55 meeting on everyone's calendar. How did you do it? I got a huge assist from Grammarly, an AI writing partner that helped me make my point. 96% of Grammarly users say that it helps them craft more impactful writing. Would you agree? Grimly helped adjust my tone to navigate tough work conversations. And it works everywhere I write, so I can quickly communicate effectively. Your teammate used Grammarly to summarize an important document, making a three-pointer. How did he do it? It only took one click. When everyone uses Grammarly, everything just makes sense. You made an incredible slam dunk to end the game. The meeting was canceled, and your team will go home champions. Go to Grammarly.com slash podcast to download it for free. That's Grammarly.com slash podcast. Easier said, done. Jackson Gatlin here, host of the Monday edition Locked On NBA podcast. Every Monday, I cover the three biggest stories in the NBA with the local experts from Locked On. It's an awesome recap of the weekend of the NBA and a look at what's ahead. Mark your calendars on Monday to join me for Locked On NBA podcast. Available on YouTube and wherever you get your podcasts. One for three. One for three or yeah, one and that's two? That's what I meant. One for three. Oh, one for three. Yeah, that's what I meant. <laughs> USC, baby. What's up? Welcome to episode number 697 of Locked on Raptors for Tuesday, April the 7th. I'm your host, Sean Woodley of RaptorsHQ.com. You can find me on Twitter as always at WoodleySean. Find the show at Locked on Raptors. We can find links to every single episode of the podcast. And of course, please make sure you are checking out the Locked on Podcast Network. We've got lots of great stuff going on over at the network this week. In particular, most people are taking a look at the best seasons in their franchise's history. So got a wide range of stuff going back to like the 1954 Cleveland Indians with Jeff Ellis on Locked on Indians. We've got the 2010 Philadelphia Flyers being talked about by Rachel and Danielle over on the Locked on Flyers podcast. There's a million things going on. Lots of really cool, fun, interesting, creative stuff coming out of all of our hosts as we continue on with no sports. And we appreciate you very much for uh, sticking with us and riding with us. It's a lot of fun to uh, churn out all this sort of throwbacky stuff. 
And we will continue to do throwbacky stuff on this here show today. Yesterday, of course, we did a live dramatic reading of the Sixers chapters of We the Champs. And much like we did after we did the dramatic reading of the Magic series chapters, we are going to talk about the series that was uh, dictated to you by my soulful voice and uh, actually get into the nitty gritty of it and talk about it a little bit. And joining me to do so today to talk about the Sixers series from last year, Probably for my money, the most stressful series I've ever experienced as a basketball fan or a sports fan in general is our pal Vivek Jacob. What's up, buddy? Hey, man. Uh, nothing much. Just uh, getting on with the day. Uh, today's been kind of slow, to be honest with you. Hmm. Um, but hey, they all are right now. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, looking forward to chatting this game, this series up, man. Yeah, this series was so weird, so intense, very stressful, lots of just like strange patterns and stuff that developed over the course of the series, like some insane numbers from the small sample theater that is a seven-game series as well. Um, But I want to ask you, so I just mentioned, I, I think this is the most stressful series I've ever seen in my entire life. Would you agree with that? The Raptors have obviously played some uh, some sphincter clenchers in the past. Obviously, they've they've had seven gamers against the Pacers and the Heat. They've you know had a conference finals against the the Cavs, where there was one game in there in particular that was especially tense. You had obviously the conference finals and the finals last season. I don't know how does the Sixers series stack up in terms of just pure stress and intensity uh, for the for the watching experience. Yeah, I think the context is what changes things with this series. I, I would probably say the most stressful one before this was when the Raptors played the Nets in that first uh, sort of return to the playoffs and Kyle got blocked by Paul Pierce at the buzzer. Um, just because of the way that game went down. It was like you had so much of your hopes taken away early in that game and then for them to make that comeback and then for Tanis Ross to steal the ball um and then to just have that completely denied that was like as gut wrenching a series that i'd experienced um so yeah this one i think with the expectations um when you look at the the rosen trade let's face it if the raptors lose this series you're saying hey was it all worth it because i mean let's face it he Kawhi left with winning a championship he obviously wasn't going to say if they went out in the second round so um yeah, so you, Kawhi leaves, Danny leaves. You have really nothing to show for the trade. Um, and so I think because of all of that, it made for some very, very, very tense moments. Yeah, this really was sort of the heat of, hey, if they get far enough in the playoffs, Kawhi might stay. And I, I'm pretty sure I made the joke while, while watching the rerun of Game 7 that, oh, hey, if they win this game, the chances Kawhi stays go up significantly. Uh, <laughs> and, like... It still felt like it was possible at the time, right? It didn't feel like yeah. it was some foregone conclusion, but it did feel like a certainty that he would he was going to leave if they fell in seven to a Sixers team they were favored against. Um, and just like the, there were a couple of games in this series, game two, game four, and game seven in particular, they were just so tense. And it was kind of offset by a weird sort of pattern in the series where the other games were just complete blowouts and like weren't even close. And so you had that too, which was another weird element of it where two teams that were so very clearly closely matched, just taking turns, beating the piss out of each other in a few of the games or more than half the series. That was a strange thing. And you could never really sort of, I think 
pencil in exactly what the terms of the series were and, you know, and predict what was going to happen night to night because it was so volatile and the swings were so enormous. But uh, I, I think without question, even with the, the conference finals that would come, that almost in a way felt a little bit more liberated. Losing in the second round again after making the Kawhi trade really would have just been, I mean... I don't think like Masai would lose his job or anything over it. I think you know the Nick Nurse hiring will still would have been vindicated and it would have been a good call no matter what. But there certainly would have been questions, and maybe the hot seat does start to uh, maybe the seat does start to warm for Masai a little bit if that all flames out and Kawhi leaves after a second round loss. I, I don't necessarily think so. I kind of think he has carte blanche in his job security for as long as he wants it. But they, I'm sure the Sports radio morons would have certainly had a field day with them losing in the second round and all of the ramifications of that. So let's dive into the series itself. Game one, I felt really good going into this series. I remember doing a podcast with Adam Aronson, Sixers Adam, uh, just before the series. He seemed resigned to the Sixers losing the series. I seemed, I, I was just, I was pretty encouraged. I thought Joel Embiid's not 100%. This team still is so. Yes, it's talented, but it doesn't really fit, and they don't seem to understand how to play with each other. They don't have any depth whatsoever, and I felt really good about the Raptors' chances of pulling up the series. I think I picked them to win at six, and I felt pretty confident in that. And then game one happens, and it kind of backs all that up, right? Like, this is a team with Marcus at center that has chemistry. Their defense is insane, and, you know, Philly's offense— as good as their defense was, their offense was a little bit clunky in the half court and was really kind of unsure of itself. And we saw how sort of the offense developed over the course of the series as the responsibility to create kind of transferred over from Ben Simmons to Jimmy Butler, which obviously had uh, pretty dire effects for the Raptors. But early on in the series, that game one where the Raptors win so handily, it just felt very, very comfortable. I don't know. What was your sort of mindset after game one when it felt like, like, did you think that this was going to be an easy series? Did you think it was sort of a flash in the pan moment? I mean, the Raptors winning a game one was just so unheard of. And like Kyle Lowry playing well in a game one was just like, what the hell's going on here? Um, it, it, it was like different. And to me, it felt different in the way that we'd always wanted it to, right? Where they were just a team that, having taken care of business and forced straight against the Magic, were just moving into the second round and weren't really perturbed by who the opponent was. They were just kind of on a mission. Obviously, things got derailed, but what were your feelings after Game 1? Yeah, I think, I think you hit the nail on the head there. The fact that they were carrying over that momentum from the Orlando series and just looking such a well-oiled machine on both ends of the floor... And Kawhi sort of hitting the peak of his form, I would say. I think that gave me a lot of confidence. I felt like, you know, based on that game one, that they were going to get through the series pretty easily. Um, going into it, I thought, you know, matchup-wise, there were things that the Sixers could do. Jimmy Butler is obviously incredible. So, you know, I expected it to be very competitive, but I still expected the Raptors to win in six. After that game one, I was thinking, hey, you know, there's a shot at five, there's a shot at a sweep. Um, they were just playing that well. And yeah, I remember tweeting uh, during game one or pretty much after Kawhi had gone off that, hey, the Raptors have a Hulk and there just seems to be no answer for that. Um, obviously, all the other pieces matter, but when you have that transcendent superstar, it just takes you to another level. Yeah, I really thought that Philly's best chance of guarding Kawhi in this game was going to be Jimmy Butler. And when Jimmy Butler surrendered 45 points pretty much entirely, 
as the main guard of Kawhi. I thought it was all she wrote. I mean, I know Ben Simmons is a good defender, but I guess that was kind of before he had really proven it to 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 anybody other than just like middling not very impressive teams and obviously we get into game two and that's where the adjustment really comes and a couple adjustments take place and the Sixers uh kind of turn the series on its head we'll get into those in just a second but first let me tell you about Blinkist the most useful app on yours mine or anybody's phone it's hard to find the time to sit down and read and learn more especially right now when yes you're at home and you have personal time but you also have things to worry about you're working from home you're balancing a new schedule you're trying to get exercise and you got the kids running around you don't always have the time that you want to work on personal development, but there is an incredible app that solves that problem, and I highly recommend it. It is called Blinkist. Blinkist is really unique, and it works on your phone, your tablet, or your web browser. Blinkist takes the best key takeaways, the need-to-know information, from thousands of nonfiction books and condenses them down into just 15 minutes that you can read or listen to. Successful people like business leaders are well-known for reading a lot of books. Blinkist is made for busy people like you, who want to get the main points of a book quickly so you can start using that information right away. And with its audio feature, Blinkist makes it so easy to finish a book during your commute, on your lunch break, while you're sitting around at home doing chores, anything you might be doing while you're social distancing, Blinkist covers you off there. 12 million people are using Blinkist right now, and it has a massive and growing library from self-help, business, and health to history books. Blinkist has the latest titles from the bestsellers list, as well as all the classic nonfiction titles you always meant to read, but never had time to. And like I said, you can use Blinkist at any time. You can use it driving in the car, you can use it while traveling, you can use it while you're out for a solo walk, not coming close to any people and you just want to isolate. You can make it while you're making, you listen while you're making breakfast, all of that stuff. It's so easy to use Blinkist, both through read and audio features. Some popular books include The 4-Hour Workweek by Tim Ferriss, Becoming by Michelle Obama, or there's sports titles as well, including Tiger Woods by Jeff Benedict and How Champions Think in Sports and Life by Bob Rotella and Bob Cullen. With Blinkist, you get unlimited access to read or listen to a massive library of condensed nonfiction books, all the books you want, and all for one low price. Right now, for a limited time, Blinkist has a special offer just for our audience. Go to Blinkist.com NBA and try it free for seven days and save $25 off your new subscription. That's Blinkist, B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, dot com slash NBA to start your seven-day trial. And you'll also save 25% off on your subscription, but only when you sign up at Blinkist.com NBA. This is Jake from Locked On. Locked On has teamed up with State Farm to spotlight some of the greatest supporting players in NBA history. After beating the Heat led by LeBron James and Dwayne Wade in 2011, Dirk Nowitzki won an NBA title and proved himself to be one of the greatest basketball players of all time. But there was one player in the starting lineup for the last three games of the finals that helped support Dirk all the way to a championship, J.J. Barea. Led by J.J. and Jason Terry, the Mavs' second unit proved to be the strength throughout the playoffs, where they led the NBA in bench scoring, but for games 4, 5, and 6 in the NBA Finals, Mavs coach Rick Carlisle inserted Barea into the starting five to help the Mavs space the floor and put more playmaking around Dirk. J.J. Barea had a knack for running the pick-and-roll with Dirk that helped the Mavs score more efficiently on their run to a title. Dirk Nowitzki couldn't score the way he did if he didn't have much-needed support from someone like J.J. Barea. Sometimes, you and I need that kind of support, too. Think of State Farm like a pivotal team player. When you need help protecting the things that matter most, remember the jingle and just say, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. 
So game two comes along, Big V, and things change a lot. So the Sixers' two main adjustments are, one, Ben Simmons takes over for Jimmy Butler as the main guard on Kawhi Leonard, and then number two, the Sixers put Joel Embiid on Pascal Siakam, hoping to sort of disrupt him with the length. They're not terribly worried about his three-point shooting. This is before he's an above-the-break monster from three, and uh, a much simpler time for NBA defenses as it relates to Pascal Siakam. And... Things early on in that game seemed well, kind of okay, kind of fine. You had the the spin move by Siakam against Embiid on his first possession where it's like, oh shit, maybe this doesn't matter. Maybe he, he's too fast and too spry for Embiid to keep up with, especially with that wonky knee. And, you know, Kawhi still had a pretty good game. He I think he had 37 points or 36 points, but he is like 13 of 24 shooting. So it was like one of his more difficult hard-working shooting efforts that he had throughout the playoffs to that point, and Simmons did a pretty good job on him. And this was when the sort of concerns about the second unit started to pop up significantly, as Fred Van Vliet and Danny Green were pretty cold, and uh, they didn't really get much out of Norm Powell either. Serge Ibaka was kind of waxing and waning. And it was, I don't know, a bit of an eye-opener in that game. They lose it at the end with that crazy scramble. You have the, the huge play by Joel Embiid, the, the, the stutter step and, and the bucket late in the, in the last couple minutes, just after he set up a Jimmy Butler three with maybe the best pass he's ever thrown in his career. It's a really good Embiid game. And obviously the Raptors, despite not playing very well, had a chance to win it or tie it late with that Danny Green wide open three off of the scramble. But I, I'm wondering what your thoughts were on game two and sort of coming out of it were you bracing for a long series? Did it feel like a one-off and that the Raptors, you know, just barely lost despite kind of doing everything they could to lose? How are you how are you feeling after game 2? Um I mean it, it was you felt like it was a little bit of a wasted opportunity, but at the same time, uh, you know, I thought Philly was just really really smart defensively and something you don't associate them with is discipline and the, the fact that they could defend at the level that they did without forcing many turnovers, like the Raptors nine turnovers in that game. Um, but again, the way Embiid was able to bother uh, Siakam, the way Fred VanVleet couldn't get his shot off, the way Danny struggled, um, I thought, you know, okay, they've made the adjustment. That, you know, you, you went on the road, you make it a series. And we, we know how good Philly is, even even with the struggles that they've had this season. We know how good they are at home. So I thought, okay, we got a series, we got a test now. Um, kind of shifted <laughs> as as things can tend to shift in the playoffs with one game, and all of a sudden your thinking changes. Yeah, I mean, game three, it was. <laughs> this is I, I wrote it in the book. It's the most like the same old Raptors the Raptors looked in the entire postseason. Yeah. Um, just like completely in disarray. The only guy doing anything for them was Kawhi. They, they, like the third quarter he had was spectacular and it kind of kept them within striking distance. But as soon as he had to sit, you just kind of felt it coming at the start of that fourth quarter. And I think the lead got extended from nine out to 18 in like two and a half minutes with Kawhi on the bench to start the fourth quarter of game three. Um, and then you have... Pascal Siakam getting his ass blocked by Joel Embiid and then tripping him and then getting the flagrant foul called and then getting blocked the next time down just viciously. And that just, it felt, that, like, level of disrespect, the windmill dunk from Embiid and the airplane thing, like, that was so akin to LeBron drinking a beer or LeBron spinning a ball in Serge Ibaka's face that it just, yeah. 
it was really hard not to bring back those memories and have it sort of feel like, oh man, yeah, they got Kawhi now, but it's the same shit all over again. They lose it by 21, and I, I, I don't know. I was just dreading the next game because I still thought the Raptors could win it, obviously. They're very good, but like the Sixers' home crowd was incredible. They were amazing at home all season long, and they have been for the last couple years, and it just kind of felt like, Damn, they've kind of figured it out a little a little bit with Butler kind of running the show. I think Butler had like 22, 9, and 9, either in Game 2 or Game 3, and was really doing a good job as the main ball handler. They were making it work with Simmons, and the defense Simmons was offering almost made it so his offense was kind of superfluous. Like, who cares? He's you know locking up Kawhi to the best of his abilities. And I don't know. The, the Embiid plus-minus splits came to bear really, really big time in this game as well. And it didn't even seem like it mattered. The Raptors, I think, tried that big lineup with with Gasol and Ibaka, and Gasol just it, it didn't quite work. And I don't know, man. It was uh, a really, really trying time. And I know it was two days between games, if I recall, and it was just like the longest two-day wait ever. And then it was made more complicated by the news that came down the Saturday before the game. The game was on the Sunday afternoon, like 24 hours before tip-off time. News came down that Pascal Siakam was doubtful with a calf contusion. This is the weirdest injury I think I've ever I can recall because it seemed like a death knell to the season for 24 hours, and then he played and didn't look very good, and then it just like never mattered again. (laughs) What the hell was with that injury? What did they do to him? What did they stick in his calf? Yeah, I I have no idea. You're right. That's what made the wait for that game feel so, so long. And you're thinking... And and the other thing, too, going from that game three, it was like, okay, you know, Siakam was the only other player that kind of got going um, in that game. You know, he had a 20-point game in that game three. um, But no one else really showed up. And and you're thinking, okay, well, if Siakam's not playing, who is going to be the one to help Kawhi out? That was... Outside of that game one against Orlando, that was Kyle's worst performance of the playoffs. And so, yeah, I, I think that's what sort of the worries. That is going to be a tough, tough, tough mountain to climb. And yeah, uh, he ended up playing. He didn't, it wasn't very effective. But speaking of adjustments, finally, you know, uh, as you'd expect with Nick Nurse, he decides to go big with Ibaka and Gasol together. And uh, I thought that really changed the series, the complexion of the series. Yeah, it really did. It was, I mean, those guys closing that game out, it kind of helped mitigate the the lack of Danny Green's production. It, uh, you know, helped you just go size for size with yeah. the Sixers and not just get bludgeoned on the glass. And, you know, the way Ibaka played, I mean, he had a great game in game four. And it just, yeah, it, it totally changed the complexion of the series. I didn't think we were going to see it. I, I thought... Nurse was pretty, and like, why wouldn't you be? Why wouldn't you stick with what got you there with that, the the starting five, like the perfectly constructed starting five that was just blitzing teams all season long when they were healthy and and playing together. And it it just seemed kind of counterproductive to throw that off in, in the interest of going big with maybe a less talented five out there. But Credit to Ibaka for, for stepping into that role and playing power forward for the first time in a season and a half and, like, being really good at it. And it just, it worked, man. And the series is not won without that. You know, Ibaka was obviously essential in Game 7 as well, which we'll get to. But 
that game four, it really turned with those guys being out there. And this is when they're inching closer as well to Gasol matching Embiid minute for minute as well. You still continue to have the insane plus minus numbers with Embiid out there. And they, they were just able to survive those Embiid minutes enough to really take advantage when he had to sit. And that that was the difference. And obviously, this was the game of the intense crunch time as well. Neither team really hitting anything. The defenses were just absurd in that fourth quarter. And then you have that Kawhi shot, which is the forgotten Kawhi shot of the postseason, obviously. You have the Game 7 bounce shot and then also the, um, I think, the dunk on Giannis and some other things he did that really kind of overshadow it. But, like, this, the entire season hinges on this game. And they're yeah. within one possession with a minute left on the clock. And they're running this, like, same same offensive play every single time on the floor just trying to get the switch running the Gasol uh and Leonard pick and roll having Embiid switch onto Kawhi and just hoping Kawhi could do something I was mad at this the strategy the entire time because it's just like why would you you know get off of one very good defender and invite an even better defender although maybe a little bit slower it wasn't yielding a whole lot it was yielding just enough to get by because you know the Sixers weren't scoring either and then Kawhi puts that shot up. What was your reaction when that shot went down? I think that's the most I've ever outwardly reacted to a basketball shot in my life. Yeah, no, that, that was that was a Jordan moment, right? Like when you when you see someone on the road, shot clock winding down, and beads on him, uh, got with a hand up, like that is just clutch to the max. And that yeah, that changed again. In terms of the series, in terms of the swag that Philly had after Game Three, for Kawhi to hit that shot and sort of be like, "Hey, I still control the destiny of the series," um, that's kind of the message he sent with that shot. And uh, yeah, it, the Raptors haven't had a player like that uh, who, who can hit big shots and decide big moments pretty much since Vince. And yeah, for him to do that in that moment, you know, all of a sudden you felt like everything's okay as you know keep it close and then Kawhi can take you home that, that was sort of my thinking at that point it's just hey just hang in there and then let Kawhi <laughs> take over later yeah that really was it uh, and it was nice having that sort of comfort of having Kawhi there it, it still did not make it any less tense and stressful uh and uh, like just the release that game was so wrought with tension and I remember I was sitting on my couch. I actually think I was standing by this point just because I couldn't sit. I had too much energy for it. And just like jumping around my living room in just like a child. It was it was nice to kind of get back to that because often you're at the arena and you can't quite do that for some of the like the same like kind of happened for the shot, right? Like I I I mostly just hugged Reynolds. <laughs> Because I couldn't do much else, but yeah, just for being a road game and just being at home in the living room, it was, I think for sure, the most I've ever just like uncontrollably released emotion after a basketball shot. It it was amazing stuff. And then, so we go to game five and six, which maybe this is just... Before we go to game five. What's up? um, I just want to quickly touch on Marcus Gasol. Yeah. Because I remember after that game three being like, man, this guy needs to shoot the ball. Hmm. as much as they were ignoring Siakam at the three-point line, like they were playing Gasol for the pass every time as well. And that was just allowing Philly's length to go to another level. Yeah. And for him to take 13 shots in this game, and I think maybe it helped that Ibaka was in there taking sort of, you know, but let's face it, Ibaka's not going to turn down a shot opportunity. And um, I think 
Paul sort of took something from that and realized, hey, like he 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 put up seven threes, uh, six shots from two point range, and I think that really just helped the functionality of the offense and just you know forced Philly to defend him more and therefore just create a few more open looks that maybe uh, they would would have hoped to give up. Yeah, definitely. It was kind of a thing with Gasol in both series, right? Where around the midway point, it just like snapped into focus. Like, oh shit, I guess I got to shoot. And he did it. And credit to him, he started the finals just like gunning away, which we'll get to in a later podcast, I'm sure. But um, yeah, no, Gasol deserves a lot of credit for the way he sort of understood and eventually started getting out more shots because it was essential for him to do that. It just, when he was shooting 40% from three as well too, right? It's not like it was, he was a 28% shooter who was just putting it up to put it up. It wasn't Jonas Valanciunas threes. It was like, no, this guy actually can do it. Fucking do it, man. (laughs) Like it's so important right now. Yeah. And you're right. That's a, it's a, it's a big sort of thing that changed in the middle of the series as well. So then we go to game five and game six. I'm going to talk about these together just because I don't really remember anything from either game. I think maybe subconsciously because I was just totally resigned to there being a game seven anyway and the Raptors doing it the hardest possible way. Like, I know game five, the Raptors were amazing. They won by 36. It was their their franchise record for uh, win uh, win margin in, in the playoffs. Like, they just rolled over the Sixers. It was over by the third quarter. But, like, there was no standout amazing performance. Like, Siakam had 25, but he was, like, 7 of 19. Gasol, like, you know, 11 on 4 of 6. The bench was, you know, alive a little bit more than it had been, but also not terribly notable outside of Ibaka with 10 points. It just, it was just like an easy, steamrolly kind of win that never really felt like it was in danger at all. And I just kind of knew, yeah, they look great here. I don't think they're winning game six at all. There's not a goddamn chance they're winning game six. Of course we're coming back here for game seven. Did you kind of feel the same way? Um, I don't know if that was my expectation. I was kind of like, okay, you know, maybe uh, Kawhi's got it going. I think game five was the one where he dumped on Embiid twice, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, I don't know. I, I, I think I was still very much riding the Kawhi wave and I was like hey man just keep it close just keep it close in game six and you can wrap this thing up um because I, I think the Bucks had finished their Celtics series at that point yeah the so, Celtics had completed their utter implosion by then yeah um gotta squeeze that in there and uh <laughs> so I was so I was kind of also sort of long-term plotting and was like hey the less games you play you're going to need that against Milwaukee. And so uh, I was hoping they'd wrap it up in six. I mean, would I have been surprised if there was game seven? No. Uh, but, yeah, I think I was still very much, hey, man, Kawhi, Kawhi is good enough to believe in anything. No matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax experts make them count. Did you say no to a big wedding and elope at the county courthouse? That's a move. Did you go back to school to get your degree? That's a move. Did you relocate for a fresh start? Well, that's literally a move. Maybe you moved into a houseboat instead of a house house or switched gears from rideshare driving to video game streaming. Or you rode the stock market to the moon and back. TurboTax experts make all your moves count, getting you every credit and deduction you deserve. They'll file with 100% accuracy and get you your max refund guaranteed. So, Switch to TurboTax. Make your moves. They'll make them count. 
See guarantee details at TurboTax.com slash guarantees. Experts only available with TurboTax Live. Yeah, fair enough. It was game six, I think, the one where really Simmons kind of broke out. They got him out and running, and yeah. he just like completely took over the game in the open floor. And I, I like that game... I think they only lost by 11, but they were down by 20 for most of it. <laughs> it just, that was the one where they started off. I think the Sixers were up like 13 5. They were going nuts. The Raptors made a bit of a concerted effort. I think they took a quick lead actually around like 22 20 or something like that. And then the Sixers took another lead, and then the Raptors could just never carve into it. And there were a couple moments here and there where it seemed like they might, you know, Kawhi had a stretch, all that stuff. But it just, I don't know, I was resigned from the tip that they were going to be going back to Toronto, and they did go back to Toronto. And boy, did they ever go back to Toronto. <laughs> like, <sighs> I know I mentioned this was yeah. the most stressful series I've ever seen. I think game four of this series is, like, the crunch time is one of the most stressful stretches of minutes I've ever seen. I don't know if I've ever seen a more tight sphinctered, just like uncomfortable game than game seven. Neither team was comfortable. Both teams were just like completely, I don't want to say they were overcome by the moment, but I think the moment was so enormous that how could you not have that sort of imbued in you a little bit? Like just the... All the like the eighteen years of buildup from the number of times we saw the Vince shot replayed before this game, like everything, it was it almost felt like every single thing that happened in Raptors history had been leading to this game. And had they gotten through, there was going to be a bit of a liberation. Yeah, the Bucks series was going to be tough, but the Bucks were going to be favored probably, and you know it was kind of a coin flippy type series, and you you take your losses if if they come. But it felt like. The, the DeMar trade, the the, you know, the Vince miss, and just everything on the way, it really felt like it was leading to that moment at the time. And mm-hmm. it just, I remember doing a TV hit. I, I came into town early and did, did a live TV hit for uh, for City TV and or, or, or whatever it is, CP24. And I, right. I, I just remember being very... I was talking to someone, the the anchor before we got on. She was like, we're talking about basketball, right? I was like, yep, <laughs> kind of. The only thing I've been thinking about for the last however many months and weeks and hours and days and whatever. Um, and she had just such like a calm and like unbothered way of speaking about the series that I could just mm-hmm. not get to. <laughs> I was sitting there just like stomach in a knot talking about this series on TV to someone who just clearly did not care at all. And it was very strange. Um, but she's probably a much healthier person than I am. So I'm not judging her or anything like that. I'm happy for her. But yeah, it's just it's very, very tense. Just like the... I would say that it felt like the entire game in Jurassic Park to have uh, like thematic uh, synergy here. Like, when you first hear the T-Rex, like, take a step into the water, just sort of ripple, it was that, but for, like, eight hours leading up to that game. It was agony, man. It was, like, an eight o'clock start, too, I think, or something crazy like that. Like, I just... Everything everything was excessively excruciating um, for all 48 minutes. Um... (laughs) Uh, I think they they hit a little bit of a comfort spot where I think they took a nine point lead in late in the second quarter, 
Yeah. And, and, and then Philly fought back from that. And you're also sort of acknowledging that this is game seven of a, of two between two teams that know each other incredibly well now. They've played each other four times in the regular season. They're going at it effectively for the 11th time now. Um, there's both, both spectacular defensively. Um, there's really no secrets at this point because everyone's sort of played their cards in terms of adjustments and whatnot. So you're just sort of, you know, running with whatever you have and whatever shot you can get off. Uh, and more often than not, I mean, that that's the thing, right? With this game, um, I, I watched it back the other day when I played. Um, and there were a bunch of stretches where it was like, get it to Kawhi, okay, please take us home. Um, just do whatever you can. We're here. We're waiting. Um, and I think everything that transpired after this, you could sort of see with the other players that the weight had been lifted. Um, and everyone sort of played with a greater freedom after this game. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. You know, It makes sense that Kawhi would be the only one not really burdened by it. And I mean... People forget he shot 16 of 39 in this game. He, he did not yeah, have a very efficient game. The clip it was, was a Demar Derozan tribute. Yeah. <laughs> Similarly lopsided from three as well, two of nine. Um, but yeah, just I mean, we don't talk enough, and I, I mean, I'm sure in this podcast we've talked about it enough, but we don't talk enough about Serge Ibaka in this game. Another guy who had like no. been through it, right, and uh, probably was not scared of the moment, never really has been, has always been kind of a playoff performer outside of that Cavs series a couple years ago when it seemed like he was uh, about to retire. Um, <laughs> but he like was so lights out in this game, making that big lineup work. He just and, and this was you know playing a lot with Gasol, who Gasol was entirely tied up in in the Embiid battle. Still the craziest stat in the world is the 45-12 that both of those guys played second for second. The Sixers win those minutes by 10 and lose the 250 or 248 without him by 12. Like It's fucking madness. It's one of the craziest stats ever. Yeah. And yeah. It, but like Gasol did just enough, right? And mm-hmm. Ibaka not burdened by that defensive role because he was obviously guarding like Tobias Harris's bunk ass um, <laughs> and was able to play a little bit more free. I mean, the the pull-up three in the corner before the Kawhi shot is like one of the biggest shots, one of the most iconic shots in Raps history and still should be because, God, that three kicks ass so much. And it, like just him and Kawhi really carried them in this one with the offense. And as much as I like, I don't think necessarily that Kyle was like scared of the moment or anything, but he did have a rough game. He was one of seven from three. Siakam looked spooked. Like this was the peak of him just being clearly scared of Embiid. Embiid kind of at his peak, you know, the mix of Shaq and Rudy Gobert, where it's just like, God, just keep the ball away from him. And also whenever you get near the rim, he's going to swat you away. Um, he still shot to six of 18 though, which is the crazy thing. Um, I don't know, just the, the tension in this game was nuts. And then, I don't know, what was your reaction when Kawhi missed that free throw and Jimmy goes the other way to tie it? Like, were you getting ready for overtime? Were you preparing yourself for something terribly heartbreaking? Or did you kind of have the faith that 4.2 seconds would be enough for Kawhi to get something off? Uh, no, I think at that point I had gone back to, um, of course that happened. Of course, the Toronto <laughs> Raptors, Kawhi 
nothing has changed. <laughs> of course, this is how it's going to end. It's going to go over overtime. They're going to lose. Um, and I was I was at the Yahoo uh, office doing the re- recap, and I was going to file at the buzzer. And yeah, so now I'm like, yeah, okay, I guess we're going to overtime. So I'm just totally relaxed. I'm like, okay. Five more minutes. I have time to file this and that. I'm not expecting anything from the Raptors inbounds, and so the shot goes up, and obviously bounce, 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 goes in. I, in my excitement, I sprint the length of the office, <laughs> and then I was like, "Oh shit, I have to file." I sprint back and start typing away. <laughs> How long is this office? This is important. Um, it was probably a, like a thirty-yard dash. <laughs> <laughs> Hell yeah! And I was like, yeah, okay. Oh, um, back back to work mode. <laughs> Did you do the thing where on the first bounce you looked away or were like, oh, it's over? Or did you watch the shot to its completion? Because I, I mean, I watched it to its completion, but I did sort of just like feel that sinking feeling of, oh shit, we're going overtime. And then over the course of like the 1.8 seconds or whatever it takes to finally go in, uh, like, like so much happened in that small amount of time and like so many feelings were felt as that, ba- right. like, like absolutely. I, I don't like it, it, it is something where time actually did slow down. It sounds cliche, but it really feels like that. And like, it just, I don't know, man, it's, it's so hard to put into words. What the fuck happened on that shot? (laughs) It's crazy. No. So, so, so the first bounce, I think I kept watching just because Ibaka was in the area. So I was kind of hoping for a tip in. Um, so yeah, at that point I, I just assumed it was a miss. Um, and so I was trying to see if Ibaka could get to it. Thank and fuck he didn't. <laughs> <laughs> and then, and yeah, bounce, bounce, bounce. And then of course the great call, um, from Kevin Harlan and Pat Devlin and all the other people across the world. We papa, we papa. Oh my God. So <laughs> I had never heard that until it played the other day oh my god and so my mind was just blown yeah that's the greatest thing i've ever heard it's a really good call it's a really goddamn good call really good shot as it turns out uh yeah i i was i don't i can't remember if i was on the quick recap or the long next day thing for hq i just know that i uh definitely hugged reynolds or just like (laughs) put my arm on his arm for like balance to avoid fainting and just like the mad dash to get downstairs and talk about the shot, it, it was it was the most frantic post game I've ever been a part of. I think for sure. Just like where where are your thoughts going? Are you writing? Are you not? Are you like, like do you how do you even form a question? Like I don't know. It was uh, it was crazy, man. Kick ass game. Yeah. My question for you. Yes. So, a couple questions. They they're both tied to the Sixers and mostly Embiid. Do you think the Sixers win the title if they get through? 
And do you think the Sixers win the series if Joel Embiid is like 10% healthier? Uh, I mean, I don't know if the health thing, uh, I think I'm still picking the Raptors to get it done if Embiid's healthier. Um, I do think that the Sixers win the title if they get through and, and if everything else plays out the way it does, right? Like if, if Kevin Durant doesn't play sort of the first couple of games of the finals and whatnot, um, if all that stays the same. Yeah, I guess it's hard to say whether or not the same the same stuff would have happened with KD, like it would have played it the same way. It's all butterfly effecty stuff, right? Maybe his Achilles was always yeah. going to explode on him. Um, and God, imagine Sixers fans definitely cheering that. Uh, <laughs> 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 yeah. Um, I'm not. I'm still not entirely sure if they would have beaten the Bucks. Like the Bucks' defense was really damn good, and their half court offense, the Sixers' half court offense, was still a bit suspect. And I, I, as much as Simmons was great defensively, I'm not sure if he would have been ready for the Giannis assignment because it's so different than Kawhi. So we did see like a bit of um, during the regular season that that 2018-19 season of teams sort of just starting to put a big on Giannis, right? Yeah, yeah. So I think learning from that Toronto series, I think Philly would have gone straight away to, um, you know, sort of having him be there to wall off Giannis. Um, So I think that would have made things tough. Uh, You know what? I I would even go as far as to say either either one of those teams, uh, you know, I think, I think the winner, basically, I'll put it this way: the, the winner of the winner of the championship that year was going to come out of the East. Yeah. Because um, I think those are the three best teams: Toronto, Philly, Milwaukee. Um, when you when you when you look at Golden State being undermanned, um, obviously, if Kevin Durant's healthy, I'm picking them. But minus Kevin Durant for what turned out to be four games, and then plus the injury. But if he's out for at least four games, then yeah, I'm picking any of those three East teams to win the championship. Yeah, I think I'm with you there. I think the other thing, too, that I would have felt not so good about the Sixers and their chances against the Bucks, and this is in hindsight, obviously, but it's very clear that like Fred Van Vliet getting absurdly hot was essential because you have to bang a bunch of threes against the Bucks, and you have to have... like They just needed that extra production. I'm not right. sure the Sixers had a Fred Van Vliet just hanging on their bench, ready to come in and like play actually up to his potential and, you know, be good. Like James Ennis was a nice story for a couple of games. Greg Monroe had one game. I'm not sure any of them would have been able to hack it in that Bucks series. And that Bucks team was really good, man. Like, yeah, yeah, I guess that's fair. You know, yeah. The more you say it, the more you say it. Yeah. It probably would have been the Bucks in the finals. Um, but Hey man, when I think when you win, see the other thing I, I I've sort of been biased towards, and this is just sort of my own thinking, is like when you've been through a battle like that, I almost feel like it takes you to another level. Yeah. Um, and I think as good as the Bucks, I mean, let's face it, part of why I felt the Bucks failed against the Raptors is because they had never faced adversity up until that point. And so they didn't really know how to deal with it. And... The Sixers had faced plenty of it. The Raptors had faced plenty of it. And 
the Pistons team they the the Bucks faced in the first round was a joke. Uh, the Celtics, you know, they they were destined to crumble that season at some point, uh, and that happened. So I just don't know. Uh, it would have been a heck of a series. Um, you know, I think you're perfectly right in saying the Bucks would have won it. Um, could the Sixers have won it? I think so. But yeah, I don't know if there's a wrong answer there. Certainly, uh, the the duel of Brett Brown versus Mike Budenholzer would have been much less compelling than anything <laughs> featuring Nick Nurse. Yeah, <laughs> Brett Brown just sure. Brett Brown just talking about the spirit of his players and not really changing anything, and then Mike Budenholzer uh, just you know being uh, unafraid to stick with his guns, uh, even though his guns were failed and and faulty. Uh, <laughs> I did it yesterday in doing the quotes of him from the book, uh, and yeah, I, I think I've landed on a pretty good impression of Brett Brown. Uh, <laughs> Do that, more often. that was James Butler. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, um, yeah, crazy stuff, man. The the uh, that series. That this is another reason why I, I think there's been. I don't think this has been a lot, at least not from smart people, but there are dumb people, certainly, and some other uh, smart people, or, or, or dumb people masquerading as smart, who, like, knock down the value of the Raptors title, and yeah, the Warriors were certainly limited, but also, the Raptors beat two monster teams on their way to the finals, and the Warriors did not have to do that, they beat a, a crumbling Rockets team and the Blazers on their way. And it's just like, I, I don't have time for that argument. There's luck that goes into every title run. The first Warriors title was based entirely on Kyrie and Kevin Love both getting hurt. And, and this shit happens every year. It's dumb to argue about it because it happens every single year. But it just, it, the even more so, the Raptors just like went through a gauntlet. And like to get through both Philly and Milwaukee... How that is not a championship-worthy team, I don't understand. Like, how your brain works, if that's what you're thinking. And it gets all moving goalpost bullshit anyway, but um, that, I've just been thinking about that as that's been a bit of a topic of conversation among Raptors fans who still feel the need to defend the Raptors and their honor, right. even though they they have nothing that they need to defend. <laughs> yeah, no, I've, yeah. I've seen a bit of that as well. And to add to the points that you've made in terms of you know, the Raptors are having to get through some very difficult teams. Like, injuries and luck, to me, are two separate things. Like, injuries are an inherent part of sports. Part of getting through the 82 games and the postseason is dealing with injuries. Like, that's just a part of the season. And so, you know, I don't look at, oh, we lost this person that was unlucky. I think that's that's just the way the cookie crumbles sometimes. And um, that's just a part of it. Like luck for me is like, you know, okay, you know, you, you, you got, okay, sure. Kawhi shot had some part of luck there, you know, with more bounces. You look at maybe, um, getting a late call that, that really shouldn't have gone your way. That is maybe luck, but with an injury, like that, that, those things, that's an inherent part of every game that you play. And so, um, yeah, I, I, I think part of surviving that and getting to the mountaintop uh, is what makes you the best team. And, and so being, you know, let's face it, there are teams that go really hard in the regular season um, and then don't have anything left in, in the postseason. So do you say, oh, my God, they were unlucky. 
no, they, they didn't plan well enough for the entire duration of the playoffs. And you look at the Raptors, it's like, hey, they planned for Kawhi and, and his, you know, we're calling it injury risk management. Hey, if they went harder with him, maybe he wouldn't have been healthy for the finals. He was already uh, playing on one leg in those finals. So um, that's, it's just a part of it, man. I, I don't really care for this asterisk stuff over injuries anymore. Like you can, you can do that with every single season. Yeah, if you want to give an asterisk to whichever team wins the Las Vegas Cup in uh, early September, then fine. Uh, <laughs> but, yeah, I'm not hearing it for the Raptors. And we don't really need to spend any more time on it because uh, it's dumb anyway. Uh, Vivek, this was great, man. Thank you for coming on. It was great to look back at the Sixers series in its entirety. And uh, what, do you have anything you want to plug right now? I uh, just, yeah, uh, my usual stuff of... Uh, on Complex, on Raptors Republic. And besides that, you can follow me on Twitter at Vivek M. Jacob. Obviously, the content uh, quantity is down these days, but hey, man, still trying to plug away. Sounds good, brother. Uh, keep up the great work. You're doing some great stuff. Uh, you can find me at Woodley Sean. Subscribe to, rate, and review this podcast wherever you get your shows. It's much appreciated. It's uh, it's lean times out here, but I think we're doing a pretty good job of getting through. Tomorrow I will be dropping another audiobook episode where we're going to go through the Bucks series that we just sort of lightly touched on, but we'll go deep into it. And then Thursday, Alex Wong, my co-author on We the Champs is going to drop, drop by uh, to talk about the Bucks series in its entirety, much like we did today. Before Friday, Big V makes his return alongside Katie Heindel for Raptors Championship Season Trivia, which is going to be a lot of fun, so stay tuned for that later in the week. Uh, next week, we might sort of change things up a little bit as we talk about the best seasons in team history and maybe dial it back to another classic season in Raptors history. Not sure which one it'll be. There are a few options. Now that the Raptors are very good and have had some nice seasons, um, but it's some other older school ones as well that we might go back to. So we'll see. We'll get back, we'll get you back to you on that next week. But that's the plan for the rest of the week uh, that I just laid out for you. So I hope you enjoy that. Stick around. And uh, now go listen to Locked On Blue Jays on your smart device to get the lowdown on what's up with the Jays as uh, apparently they're working on some sort of dumbass biosphere to play baseball in in May, which uh, hopefully doesn't happen because it sounds terribly irresponsible. But that's for another time. Thank you so much for tuning in. We will talk to you again on Wednesday with another episode of Locked On Raptors. Wilson, you sent the game-winning email at the buzzer, avoiding a 4.55 meeting on everyone's calendar. How did you do it? I got a huge assist from Grammarly, an AI writing partner that helped me make my point. And it works everywhere I write. Summarizing a doc only took one click. When everyone uses Grammarly, everything just makes sense. Go to Grammarly.com slash podcast to download it for free. That's Grammarly.com slash podcast. Easier said, done. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to this Locked On podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today.